This is uncharted territory that no one would have imagined that we would be in. Our biggest challenge right now are the lack of computers for our students at home and the lack of internet connectivity. We need internet connectivity to flow like electricity. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. You just heard State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond talking on CNN this week about the logistical challenges of bringing distance learning to 6 million students across California. And there are still lots of challenges to overcome. This week, first partner Jennifer Siebel Newsom said that one in five students in the state lack internet access or devices they'll need to participate in online classrooms. John, I think that number is up for debate because there has been a massive effort in recent weeks to close the digital divide, and certainly hundreds of thousands of students who did not have access before now do. But perhaps an even greater challenge now falls on the shoulders of teachers. They've been tasked with providing an online experience that will be meaningful and supportive for their students and hold their attention for the rest of the school year. Last week, we talked with a superintendent on our podcast. This week, we wanted to get teachers' perspectives on how things are going. We'll talk with Larry Ferlazzo, a well-known author in education who is also a high school teacher in Sacramento. But first, what's on everyone's minds is not only how to get through this year, but what will happen with funding for schools in general, as California's economy slows to a halt and a recession seems inevitable. Now for a perspective and maybe an educated guess on next year's state funding for education, and by next year I mean this coming school year, we have on the line Bob Blattner. He's a longtime consultant for school districts on fiscal and other matters. Bob, you've been looking at these numbers pretty closely. I mean, more than most people in the state and probably most people in Sacramento. What's your view on this? How bad is this going to be? It's going to be really bad. It's really bad already. One of the things that makes this so different from the Great Recession, which was awful, as we remember, we're getting hammered from both sides, both budget sides in the COVID piece, because obviously our revenues are tanking because capital gains are going to plummet. And obviously withholding taxes, corporate taxes, sales taxes are all going to plummet. Yet on the other hand, we're facing huge added expenses on the expense side of the budget for uh, taking care of the homeless population, for all of our PPE, our personal protective equipment, all of those things. And so as our revenues are plummeting, it's not like we have the ability to use all of our savings. And by savings, do you mean that rainy day fund that uh, Governor Brown was so insistent on trying to build up? Absolutely. Governor Brown pushed the budget stabilization account, the rainy day fund, in fact, overfunded it. So we have $3 billion more in that account than even the Constitution required. So you're saying that that rainy day fund is not going to be enough to mitigate a lot of the damage? Not by itself, certainly not. The total amount at this point is about $17.5 billion. The best estimate for the last three months of this fiscal year and next fiscal year, in other words, through next June 30th, the best guess is the Legislative Analyst Office using the Great Recession as a model, which is an imperfect model to be sure, but they're looking at maybe $35 billion in revenue hits. 
Isn't there a huge amount of uncertainty around this, or can we predict that there's going to be, regardless of what happens, that the budget is going to take a big hit? Absolutely. There's a huge level of uncertainty. Unfortunately, all of the uncertainty has been trending negative. So, for instance, a month or so ago, there was still hope for what we call a V-shaped recession. So it's a real sharp decline and then a very sharp rebound. Well, that's off the tables now as we learn more about the epidemiology. So now we're looking at a U as in underground or underwater recession, or maybe even an L-shaped recession in which we don't know when we're going to climb out of it. Just to clarify, the L being things are going to stay flat until what point? That's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know when we will be able to crawl out of the shelter-in-place things. We don't know how this disease is going to act. We don't know if there's going to be a rebound probably a year to 18 months before we have a vaccine, maybe. And then after that, we don't know how long-standing the damage to the economy is going to be. You know, even if all of a sudden we don't have to worry about COVID-19, we have 20% of our labor force out of work. We have huge supply chain issues. Uh, we don't know how fast the rebound will be. Education is tied to a percentage or a rough percentage of the general fund. So if you're talking about a general fund of that magnitude, then the money for schools through a formula called Proposition 98, that would be severe too, right, Bob? Uh, absolutely. Proposition 98 is a little overcomplicated. And so sometimes it's not tied to a percent of revenues and things. There are these various machinations called tests. What you can say, though, is Prop 98 does generally about as well as the economy. The economy is doing horribly, and consequently, so will Prop 98. We're speaking with school consultant Bob Blattner. So this is coming at the same time that not only their general fund expenses, but schools are facing additional expenses and are coming off of the school closures with a lot of needs. So... Will the uh, legislature and the governor actually give a huge cut to education? What's your best reading of things? Well, I think we're looking, you know, at at least two years. So I think that the governor and the legislature will do everything they can to avoid cuts to schools. Traditionally, that's been the case. It's, it's not just a good idea. It's the right thing to do. It's good politically. It's good morally. It's good for the state. But we're facing a huge challenge that the federal government does not. And that is that the Constitution of California requires a balanced budget. We can't just go, hey, you know what? We're going to borrow $100 billion, $50 billion to get us through this and we'll pay you back later. And so we don't have a lot of the capability that the federal government has, which is why everyone is looking with such hope and unease to Washington, D.C., that's going to be the wild card that will really help us out. Although there are other options in the, in the interim that the very bright people in the administration, you know, the cards they've played during the Great Recession. This is different, but some of the tools in the toolbox may be the same. Give us one, Bob. Maybe the most well-known during the Great Recession was something called an apportionment deferral. The state only had so much money. Proposition 98 was in the tank because... There wasn't a lot of money and Proposition 98 drops as a result. And so what the state said was, we only have this much money, we can only send you this much money, but we're going to allow you to book and spend 
money that you're not going to get to next year. So it really was kind of a uh, Jay Wellington wimpy solution. The state said, go ahead and spend it like you really have it, although you don't. Didn't school districts then have to go out and get loans and so on to get through this period? They did. One of the things about the deferrals is that it's only a one-year fix. You know, if you if you take a $100 advance off your next paycheck, when you get to your next paycheck, it's going to be $100 short. So you're going to have to take $100 off the paycheck after that just to hold even. And so what would happen is we would have additional deferrals every year, ranging from $2 billion to substantially more, two and a half, close to $3 billion every year. And by the time we were done with the recession and the deferrals, the total amount that school districts have to borrow every year was over $10 billion. Bob, I have to say that is probably something that most Californians were totally unaware of. <laughs> Good. I, and they should have been because the important thing was taking care of kids in schools. And we were able to do that. So that's one strategy. Anything else that they could pull out of the hat? Yeah, there, there are. For instance, uh, John alluded to the increased costs that schools were facing even before we got into this. The increased costs for employer contributions for the retirement programs. They have been increasing sharply in response to Governor Brown's call to make the whole program actuarially sound. That's a big word. Basically, the, the payments weren't keeping up with the, with the out-year obligations. And so school districts had to chip in more. More than doubled what they were paying. And the increases are still going. So for instance, the state could say, we're going to forego the increases. We're going to keep you where you've been paying for the next year or two. And that's, you know, well over a billion dollars there. If a $2 billion hit is $10,000 per classroom across the state every year. And so some of these creative workarounds avoid that, which is, which is so important for everyone. Before we let you go, the prospects are not looking good. Is there anything that kind of gives you some hope that we'll, we'll kind of get through this without just a huge amount of damage? I mean, you've pointed to the fact that there's a, a lot of smart people working on this. I guess that's something to be grateful for. But anything else? Well, if you compare this to the Great Recession, and you may remember just how difficult it was to get the ARA, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, more than a decade ago. That took forever and it was very, very contentious. And it, the total was less than a, a trillion dollars, right? It was like 880 billion. It seems as if for a number of reasons, and everyone can speculate and probably hit it pretty close, for a number of reasons, the federal government is acting more quickly this time and more aggressively to pick up the slack. And I think that's a good thing. I think the reason that there's more money coming down the pike is that you've got a Republican president and a Democratic House. And so, you know, during the recession, people, the Republicans just didn't want to give the president as much as he was looking for. Hopefully the scenario will be different this time. You, you are so right. Well, talking with Bob Blattner, one of the state's leading experts on school finance. Thanks for talking with us today, Bob. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe. Rather than getting mired in the uncertainties about what is coming down the pike, let's focus on what's happening now, on how teachers are handling the virtual classroom. We asked two teachers to describe a challenge they have faced with distance learning. We'll hear from Jeremy Akiyama, a fifth grade teacher at East Palo Alto Charter School, and Megan Serrell, a third grade teacher at Broadway Elementary School in Venice, which is a part of Los Angeles Unified. One thing that we're finding challenging is 
ways to be flexible in providing access to our students, especially for our students with IEPs or in special education or English language learners. Traditional ways of connecting and providing access might not work for, for them. For families who are working two jobs and maybe they're the only parent in the household, we're finding challenges in meeting the needs of our family schedules as well. I think one of the biggest challenges that I faced is how to support my students and their families, not just with technology and getting connected so that we can continue to work together through this time, but also with providing social and emotional support. When my students have questions I can't answer, when parents are frustrated about technology not working, I'm trying to help guide them through and support them. And that's been a really big part of my work. The experiences that Jeremy and Megan describe are no doubt familiar to our next guest, Larry Falazzo. Larry teaches English, social studies, and international baccalaureate classes to English language learners and mainstream students at Luther Burbank High School in Sacramento. Many teachers know Larry through his nine books, his popular weekly column on teaching and education week, his blogs, and his podcasts. He also has 72,000 followers on Twitter, I say enviously. Welcome, Larry. Well, thank you. I'm happy to answer some questions. In one of your recent tweets, you wrote, I'm a hardworking teacher when I'm physically at school. I feel like in some ways I'm working even harder with remote teaching. It feels nonstop. Larry, how is that? This abuses of the notion that teachers doing distance learning are working half-time or in full-time pay. Well, I think one of the big challenges for teachers is that really students don't have to come to our classes now, right? And it's very easy for them not to come to our classes. So we have to work hard at that and at being in touch with them, being in contact. We have to be extraordinarily aware of the stresses and challenges that are facing their lives. I mean, when they're in physical school, we need to be aware of that too. But really, we can teach without being that aware. Our classes compete against a whole lot of other things right now much more so than they might ordinarily. And also on that is our lives are stressful too. Right. You know, especially for teachers with little kids at home. So it just requires a lot of prep, lots of phone calls, and has having to be on a lot. And you're in touch with, I don't know if most teachers do the extent of phone calling and one-on-one because you're finding out what's going on in their lives. How do you do that and how often? Well, I do a live half-hour class for my English language learner newcomers every day from 9.30 to 10. You know, we always have a check-in time there, and then I always follow up with calls if students don't arrive. With my IB Theory of Knowledge classes, we do a weekly voluntary video conference check-in. And then I follow up with calls to students who do not participate in those, not to scold any of them for not participating, but to check in what's going on and how they're doing. That's a lot of students in the combination IB classes, right? I mean, how do you have time to do all that in? That's why I'm working hard. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I have, you know, between the the four classes, I have about 115 students. And uh, I mean, fortunately, most of the newcomers participate in the daily class. Most of the IB students either participate in the video conference call or we're communicating through Google Classroom. One way or another, I'm able to communicate on a regular basis with the vast majority of them. 
But for the small minority that not, texting, calling, just trying our best. I mean, just today, you know, I got texts. One of my students who's being the prime caregiver to her elderly grandfather. Another one who's having to work full time because his parents got laid off. I mean, we just got to be flexible. Yeah. Today, actually, in an hour and a half, our school is distributing 600 Chromebooks, finally, to our students. That will help connect up with at least some students we haven't been able to connect up with. We're speaking with Larry Falazzo, Ed Week columnist and high school teacher from Sacramento. Larry, describe a week in your English language learner classes and your international baccalaureate classes. How are they different? My ELL newcomers class is a half-hour live class every day early in the morning. And it's a student-driven curriculum in the context of, I asked students, what do you want to learn about? And they said, oh, we want to learn about the coronavirus, we want to learn about sports, we want to learn about jobs, and we want to learn about the military, because some of them are in JROTC. That is my curriculum for the rest of the year. I can teach reading, writing, listening, speaking skills around that easily, around any of those issues. For the IB Theory of Knowledge class, they're in the middle of preparing an oral presentation and a slideshow, having lots of conversations about how to do it, and then we're doing online oral presentations that they're going to be able to choose their groups who they present with, and we record them. That will be followed by doing an essay, doing an IB prompt. You said in one of your advice columns to parents that they should find a quiet place for their children to do their homework. It sounds like that's not possible every day. So how does that affect their work? My advice was actually, if possible, find a quiet space. Because for many of our students, it is not. You know, we got a lot of kids in a small space and people can't really go outside these days. It's a challenge. All of those suggestions I made to parents were sort of aspirational The best thing that parents can do is what they're doing anyway, dealing with the challenge with compassion and perseverance. We've been talking with Larry Falazzo, high school teacher in Sacramento, blogger, writer. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Before we go, let's hear again from teachers Jeremy Akiyama and Megan Serrell, this time about some of the bright spots they've experienced in this challenging new world of distance learning. Our kids are showing up in new ways, and it's been gratifying to see students who can access our work grow as independent learners. Um, I took a moment just to sit back and watch my class talk over Zoom, telling each other, you know, that they got this, going over a difficult problem and offering feedback to each other on their writing, um, just in different ways. And our students and families are pioneering the next evolution of education. And as teachers, we're reminding ourselves of the creative authority, innovation, and resilience that made us become teachers in the first place. The greatest joy of this time has actually been the opportunity to step back and really focus on what I think is most important in education, which is the relationships that we build between teachers and students, but also among the students. So this time of year, we would usually be laser focused on state testing and preparing for that. But I've actually taken this time to really step back and just celebrate my students. So this week, students have been sharing about their interests and their talents. So we've had students singing over Zoom and sharing about um, cars and how they work or the history of basketball. And it's just been so wonderful to see the students continue to bring their personality and have opportunities to celebrate each other with our class. 
great to hear from teachers who really are doing heroic work during this incredibly difficult time. We want to thank Jeremy, Megan, and Larry Falazzo for sharing their perspectives. We'll include links to Larry Falazzo's blog and his Education Week column and his Twitter account in our daily digest that we send out to subscribers. We encourage you to join that list. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Beckville Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Kobe, thanks for arranging all of this during this period of remote production. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. And take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 